Most Americans' direct experience with the European Union is probably limited to the colorful Euro bills featuring pictures of Roman arches and statues and such that we use to buy stuff when touring Athens or Paris or Berlin, saving us from having to change money into a new national currency every time we switch cities. But the European Union is so much more than the Euro. It's a supranational institution of 27 countries. And within that huge group, it has a major say in everything from agricultural subsidies to data privacy, to national debt. And if the EU were a country, it would have the world's largest economy and third largest population, even now that the United Kingdom has Brexited. This week on The Elucidators, we're going to discuss a historic step taken by the EU's member states to try to rescue some of its financially weaker members from pandemic-related economic catastrophe. Will it bring the EU closer towards the United States of Europe? Or are we maybe watching the beginning of the end for the EU? We have thoughts. And as always, if you like what we do, please leave us a five-star review and share us on social media. Thanks. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Halley, and with me, as always, is my co-host and producer, Pete Newsom. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you doing, man? Uh, I'm cruising. It's swimming weather here in Los Angeles, so I am working on my backstroke. Hmm. How, how's your, your backstroke these days? It's not good. I'm crooked, oh, sh- and I run into the side of the pool. Damn, man. Well... There's always room for improvement. I'm glad you're working working at it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. I think I think my my left side is overdeveloped or something. But mm-hmm. you know, special exercises for this. Strive for balance in all things. <laughs> exactly, especially in the pool because <laughs> you don't want to s- scrape my side. Yeah, but you know, it's it's co- it's COVID times, so we're all developing new hobbies um, such as podcasting and the backstroke. Backstroking and podcasting. That's right. That's what 2020 is about. Maybe maybe next week's episode will be poolside. Who knows? <laughs> Weather permitting. Anyway, what are we doing this week? Where are we? Well, Steve, this week we are in the European Union. Ooh. Yeah. That's not a country. It's not a country. It is a union that consists mm. of 27 different countries. Mm. This week, the EU agreed to a historic bailout deal. For Ooh. for its countries for the COVID crisis, it's a recovery deal, and it's part of a larger overall budget for the EU that they agree on every six years or so. But there are some new things about this bailout deal that have never happened before in the EU. Never been done, huh? That's right, brand new stuff in the EU. So the bailout deal consists of two parts. Some of the money is in the form of grants, which don't need to be paid back. So it's basically free money. Nice. I like free money. (laughs) Monopoly money. I'll tell you, I don't dislike free money either. No. The other part of this bailout deal consists of loans. Less good. So the grants are in the amount of 390 billion euros, which is roughly 450 billion US dollars. That's a lot of money to be given as grants, and it's never been done before ever in the EU. Yeah. Um, The loans in this recovery deal consist of 360 billion euros. So Mm -hmm. 390 billion in grants, 360 billion in loans. 
loans have been giving given out in the EU in, okay. in economic crises before, namely the eurozone crisis, which took place. 2010 to 2012. Oh, I remember that. That's when the Greeks went bankrupt and almost bombed out of the Eurozone, right? I think that's the one, yeah. That's the one, yeah. All right, we'll get into that a little <laughs> bit later. All right, so if we're talking about 750 billion with a B Euros, which is approaching a trillion dollars, not quite a trillion dollars, mm. we're talking about a better than 50-50 split for free money. yeah. Not bad, EU. I don't think so. I mean, it's necessary. It's what needs to be done, right? It's a crisis. Yeah. Well, it's certainly what's happening here in the United States, where the uh, money printing presses has have been running full steam since March. And the Europeans are over there looking at this and being like, hey, we can do that too, maybe, for the first time, as it turns out. We will get into the ins and outs and whys and wherefores before all of that, though, I thought perhaps I could do a brief introduction to the European Union itself. So we've talked about the European Union before. Pete, you mentioned that it is 27 member states strong. It did not start out that way. It started out actually very small indeed in the early 1950s between actually just Germany and France, who, as we all know, are historic enemies on a very large scale. They've fought fought many, many wars over the hundreds and thousands of years that the, <laughs> these countries have existed in, in different forms. In the 20th century, we had World War I and World War II, which killed millions of the respective citizens fighting against one another. Fast forward to the 1950s, and they are sick of fighting one another. And what is the best way for France and Germany to avoid fighting? Well, some big brains on both sides got together and decided that if they agreed to share coal and steel production, it'd be pretty difficult to go to war again because you need coal and steel to make tanks and guns and uh, stuff like that. <laughs> Planes to bomb each other. I share coal and steel production with all my best friends. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, when's that shipment coming? I, I need more coal. We talked about this, Steve. I need coal to run my air conditioner. <laughs> Clean coal, of course. And so pretty much immediately after they make this deal, they're joined by Netherlands, Italy, Luxembourg, and Belgium. And this is the European economic community. It starts very small and remains small until the 70s when we have the first new members join. Denmark, Ireland, and the UK join in 1973. In the 1980s, we have some Southern European dictatorships finally fall. Greece joins, Franco finally kicks the bucket over in Spain, and Salazar is out in Portugal. So we get Greece, Spain, and Portugal, the Southern European members. Mm. In the 1990s, we have the so-called Single Europe Treaty, the Maastricht Treaty, and the Schengen Agreement, which dissolves the internal borders between the members of the European Union. That's the next step for the euro. It's in the 2000s, the creation of the euro currency. Now, not every member of the European Union joins the euro. 19 of them end up joining. There are some notable holdouts like Sweden and the UK that never join. But most European Union members do join the euro. And a lot of the ones that haven't yet are just trying to get their economies in the right shape to be able to join because they have to satisfy a checklist of sort of budgetary requirements in order to be able to join the euro. 
In addition, in the 2000s, many Eastern European member states joined the European Union because this is now a full decade after the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, the fall of the Soviet Union. And a lot of these countries like Hungary, Poland, and, and so on, Romania, are now in fighting shape, uh, democracies, and ready to join. Gotcha. So from the 50s, it was just France and Germany, and by the 2000s, it was 27 countries total. Exactly. Yeah, it, it has moved actually pretty quickly. However, in the last decade, in the 2010s, we had some challenging times for the European Union. We had the previously mentioned Eurozone crisis, which basically was contemporaneous with the Great Recession here in the United States. It manifested a little bit differently over the in the European Union in that the newly created Eurozone almost fell apart due to recessions, bad recessions, in those Southern European member states. And this is an important point uh, because those same structural problems and the sort of divide between the Southern European states and the Northern European states have reared their ugly head once again here in 2020. So uh, bookmark that for later. It's, it's important. So if the EU were a state, and it's important to emphasize that it isn't, it's a, it's a voluntary supranational union of countries. So countries maintain individual sovereignty, but they're a part of this transnational organization that has a lot of important powers and they derive a lot of benefits from this organization. It's not a state. It's something new, something that some Europeans and other well-wishers would like to see turn into a state, would Mm -hmm. like to see become the United States of Europe at some point, but we're not there yet. If it were a state, how big would it be? It would be very big indeed. It would have the world's largest economy, bigger than the United States. That's big. Yeah, real big. And its third largest population behind China and India, but actually bigger than the US. It would be about 500 million people, something like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's important to note that the EU is not really a military power, particularly not now that uh, the UK has left. But it does have massive influence in the form of international aid, economic regulations. The EU sets all kinds of product and service regulations that transnational or multinational corporations basically set for themselves to gain access to that huge market. Internet privacy comes to mind as one of those. Yes, it does. The, the GDPR, for instance. It's uh, the General Data Privacy Regulation of the European Union is, is a wonderful example in the form of cultural power and also democracy and human rights promotion. So the European Court of Justice, for instance, and the International Court of Justice are both headquartered in the European Union, and they, are, they have successfully prosecuted war criminals from the Balkans, from Liberia, lots of other places as well. Mm. So even though the EU is not a state and does not retain its own armed forces, it actually throws a lot of weight around. Right. And this is even after the loss of the UK, which was its largest military power and its second largest economy. And if we were to think, once again, in American terms, because we're Americans, this would be like the United States losing Texas. It's a big deal. Right. It's a big deal, but it's not necessarily a deal breaker. It's just big. Yeah. It's, it's non-fatal. The UK has gone its own way, and the European Union remains. All major decisions at the sort of EU level, the transnational level that affects 
all the member states require unanimous consent from 27 countries. That sounds very difficult to ever achieve. Yeah, it is, it is in fact achieved pretty regularly, but it requires a lot of horse trading. 27 nations, some of which are very radically different, some of which are no longer even democracies. And we'll get into that too. Yes, that's right. The European Union contains non-democracies. Interesting. That's not supposed to happen. Um, it's, it's not, but it has. Let's talk about some of the details of this deal, the coronavirus bailout deal. Yeah, totally. So what's the motivation for this deal? The motivation is basically COVID-19 did a number on Europe, just like it's done a number on practically every other country on Earth, the United States, Brazil, China, of course. There are a few exceptions. Taiwan and New Zealand come to mind, but pretty much everybody else, including the rich countries of Europe, really got pasted in the kisser by coronavirus. However, there's been kind of a differential effect for a lot of different reasons. Just due to bad luck, the European outbreak got going in Italy. So Italy got the worst hit. In addition, Italy, Spain, and Spain have somewhat older populations than some of the other European countries. And they, along with Portugal and Greece, do not necessarily have the most trusting populations when it comes to trusting the government and <laughs> telling you what to do. Hmm. All of this to say, Southern Europe had a tougher time with COVID. It's, these countries are poorer and more indebted to begin with. So they're not necessarily poor. Italy's actually a pretty rich country. But compared to Germany... Um, or Denmark, for instance, it's it's poor. And the Southern European countries classically have carried big budget deficits. In this case, all over 100% of GDP. So they're running massive deficits worth more than the, uh, the total amount of all the goods and services produced in each country. <laughs> in the case of Italy, they're actually headed towards 200% of GDP. <sighs> Not going good. Yeah. Of course, Italy and Spain suffered mass casualties from the virus starting in March. And on top of this, one thing about Southern Europe is it's a nice, nice place to go in the summer. Mm. They're, they're very dependent on tourism. Nice beaches. I really wish I was on a Greek beach right now, to be honest. Yeah, it'd be pretty good. Mykonos, yeah. And Northern Europeans in particular, Europeans like to take really long vacations in the months of July and August. Basically, the whole continent shuts down in August, and they all go to Southern Europe. <laughs> Do not blame them. <laughs> no, not at all. If you're from Finland or someplace like that, where it's about to be dark 24 hours a day for the next seven months, yeah, can't possibly blame you. But with COVID running rampant, that is much less likely to, to happen at the usual rates. So all this to say, Southern European economy is not doing so hot. And... Here's the thing, critical point about being part of the Eurozone. That means that you're on the Euro. It means that you do not have the Italian Lira. You do not have the, the Spanish Peso. You don't have the Greek Drachma, all of these national currencies. Mm -hmm. If you had a national currency, then you have the ability to print your own money, which is what you do to stimulate your economy. You actually debase your own currency and start <laughs> printing and spending. You dump money into the economy, which is something the United States has done in very, very large amounts. Got it. Yeah. So these countries require money input from the EU 
if they hope to Correct. recover from this. They can't do it themselves. They can't do it themselves. They have to use euros or exit the eurozone, which they don't want to do because yeah. they don't want to do it and and the other countries in the EU don't want them to do it as well, right? Correct. Yeah, and we'll we'll explain why in a little bit mm. because we're going to talk about those northern Europeans. Ah, yes, those guys. And this is a group of countries classically consisting of Germany, Netherlands, the Scandinavian countries, Austria, and those types of places, wealthier places. They're stronger economies. They're mostly based on manufacturing. We've got Daimler-Benz. We've got Mercedes. We've got Volvo, which I guess is now owned by Ford, but, you know. <laughs> we won't mention that. <laughs> Nevertheless, yeah, they're, they're wealthy and productive economies. They're, they're more advanced economies, and they're historically a lot less willing to take on debt. The Germans in particular hate the idea of debt because they have a really bad historical experience with debt in the interwar period between World War I and World War II, when the Weimar Republic printed a bunch of money and ended up in a situation of hyperinflation, which, of course, led to the rise of the Nazi party. And we know how that story ended. Not so great. So the Germans are... I think, just constitutionally adverse to the whole idea of, of taking on debt. Okay. These countries have mostly done better with the virus. The Germans have done very well. The Dutch and the Swedes, actually not so much. But the other Scandinavian countries and Austria, also pretty good. On the balance, I think overall, generally better than most of the rest of Europe. And it's important to note that these Northern European economies derive huge benefits from the euro, especially Germany, which exports 60% of its stuff to the rest of the European Union, all those luxury cars, all that machinery, industrial equipment. That sounds like a, ve a very strong motivation to keep the EU solvent, every country in it. Yeah, because once again, everybody's on the euro, and that means that the Germans have no currency appreciation problem. That is to say, if... I'm Greece, and I'm buying a bunch of German stuff. What would ordinarily happen if I'm using my own currency instead of the euro is I need a bunch of German Deutschmarks, or you know, the other currency, in order to pay for those goods and services that I'm buying from Germany. So I change my Greek drachma over into Deutschmarks, and... The supply and demand operates for currencies just as it operates for any other good or service. So demand for Deutschmarks rises, and that means that they become more valuable relative to the Greek drachma. The Greek drachma is devalued, and a balance is restored, whereby, because the drachma is now cheaper, my, I'm actually more able to export from Greece to Germany than I otherwise would be, because my goods are now relatively cheaper, and Germany's are relatively more expensive. If we're both on the euro, then this sort of balancing mechanism, this nat natural balance, does not function. So the Germans basically enjoy artificially cheap currency within the context of the European Union. And this is a big deal in terms of their ability to just continuously export all of their stuff and make money with their European partners. It almost seem, seems like they should be more 
open to bailing out their fellow EU members yes. based on <laughs> how much benefit they derive from this? Seriously, yeah. Just, and the, just one man's observation. but uh, It's not just your observation. It's, I think, uh, also with the Southern Europeans are saying, we've been buying your expensive stuff forever, right? And we've gotten a lot out of being part of the euro. But if you want us to stay in, we're going to have to do a deal, right? right? In addition, the Germans and the Northern Europeans have more money, or in better shape, they can afford to pay way more to support domestic companies. So ordinarily, this is not allowed within the European Union because it's anti-competitive. If I you know, take out a bunch of state contracts for Mercedes-Benz cars or something like that, it's anti-competitive. And it's, it's bad within the context of the EU. But an exemption has been made during COVID times because... Every individual com- com- country needs to stimulate its own economy however it can, right? So they've been out raising debt individually, once again in the euro. But the Germans are way more creditworthy than the Italians are. <laughs> so <laughs> they get way better rates, basically. I give the Italians a lot of credit for certain things. Yeah. Ravioli. Shoes. Beautiful shoes. Red wine. I mean, Capri pants. Gelato. Gelato. Gel- yes, yes. Excellent. Credit worthy in the gelato department. That's all I'm going to say. Oh, and Dante's Inferno. Anyway, so this split between the North and the South has always been a problem in the Eurozone, especially during the Eurozone crisis, which you were talking about earlier. I'm an expert on the topic, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know. Please <laughs> expound, or I will. Why don't you? I mean, I could, but maybe you should this time. Yeah, I get sick of hearing you talk about it, so I'm just going to... I'm a broken record on the uh, Eurozone crisis, it's true. Yeah, I know, man. Uh, Seriously. So Greece was in terrible shape due to the Great Recession, and the Germans, the IMF, and the European Union more broadly, basically just put put the screws to them in order to authorize loans that they needed to avoid exiting the European Union. And we're talking about austerity requirements on the order of firing half your civil servants, cutting half of your pension plan, slashing government spending, you know, health and childcare and all this other stuff. Basically, turning Greece from a developed country into a place with a much worse standard of living and pretty wild politics, including blood in the streets there for a while. I believe they had multiple governments rise and fall over the course of this Eurozone crisis in an effort just to see whether or not these bailout packages would pass, but they did. Italy and Spain almost defaulted too, but eventually Germany and France together, the sort of at that time number one and number three powers in the European Union, Britain being the number two power at that time, Germany and France decided to do whatever it takes to save the euro. So they came through with the loans, and the euro survived, barely. Continue on to this day. Yes. <laughs> As sol- solvent members of the EU. Yeah, they do. And so does Greece. Um, but Greece only exited the austerity requirements in 2018. It's only been a few years since they got out from under this like really onerous program. Right, so it was like six, six or eight years that they were under austerity. Yeah, just like hardcore like poverty rations that made the European Union pretty unpopular, even though they are still a member. The basic problem 
at the heart of the European Union. There, there are a number of problems. But the one we're talking about right now is that the Southern European countries have a big incentive to exit the euro, regain their own currencies, and start printing money to rescue their economies from this terrible situation that they're in. That sounds like a recurring theme. Exactly. It is a recurring theme because they run bigger deficits and they're not as creditworthy. Um, but they still need to raise money somehow. And it gets harder and harder and harder for them. The more money they raise, the more difficult it is to raise more. And you get into like this sort of debtor spiral whereby you're paying down your credit cards with new credit cards. It's basically the analogy. Hmm. It's not a situation you want to be in. Meanwhile, the Northern European countries want to keep them in the Eurozone so they can continue to sell them stuff and make more money than they otherwise would. Also, if anybody leaves the Euro, it'll tank the currency's value and possibly lead to the destruction of the, the Eurozone in general, which would be very bad for them. So the Southern Europeans, even though they're poor, actually have a lot of leverage. Right. It kind of sounds like no matter what kind of noises the Northern European countries make, they're going to do everything they can to keep the Southern European countries from leaving the EU at the end of the day. It's this weird situation where like, somebody is threatening to exit, but they don't actually want to leave, and you kind of want them to stay at the same time. Yeah, that sounds like... It is kind of like a toxic relationship. I think, I think that's, that's apt. And here's the other thing. The European Union didn't do a good job with their COVID response initially. In fact, it, it really sucked. The central health planners of the European Union did not have a plan, had no idea how much equipment was available, either to the European Union or across the individual member countries. There was like no data on that. And furthermore, there was no movement on a system-wide plan until people actually started to die in Italy in late February. And just like everybody else, including us in the United States, we had been watching Wuhan since January. So we had time. And they, like us, didn't use it. <laughs> and that's a common theme, too. Just didn't foresee how big of a crisis it would be. Yeah, no, the thought was, hey, like we can test and isolate individual cases, no big deal. People didn't know very much about the virus at this time. Uh, they didn't understand how contagious it was. So when the Italians asked urgently for equipment and aid in late February and early March, they heard a bunch of crickets. No masks, no swabs. France and Germany actually banned the export of medical supplies. Okay, that doesn't seem like a very <laughs> unified thing to do. No, everybody got scared. And when people get scared, it's kind of like every man for himself. And, but that's not supposed to be the case. Sure, that's, that's exactly counter to the idea of a union, right? Precisely. And in addition, everybody closed their borders, the internal borders of the European Union, which also isn't supposed to happen. Wow. So under the first sign of stress, or the first amount of stress, some of the key pillars of the EU just collapsed. <laughs> it, did, it didn't happen. Yeah. Okay. So if I'm the Italians and the Spaniards, I'm not so happy with the European Union right now. I'm not, I'm not loving my membership. As it turns out, 44% of Italians now want to leave the European Union. This is up from 9% 20 years ago. Wow. That's a, that's a huge jump, no doubt. It's a big deal because Italy is the EU's number three power 
behind Germany and France. It's a top 10 economy in the world. And it's a founding member of the European Union, which mm-hmm. the UK was not. So the threat here is extremely real. <laughs> yeah. We're at 44%. So, you know, that is a ticking bomb at the heart of the European Union. Something has to be done to keep these guys happy and in, in the EU. So Pete, I ask you, what's in this deal, man? Right. Okay. The deal, the COVID bailout deal. So as we said earlier, the deal consists of a combination of grants and loans. The grants don't need to be repaid. The loans do. Germany and France, which are the EU's number one and two powers, respectively, saw eye to eye on a rescue package that they originally pitched several months ago. Mm -hmm. And what they proposed was 500 billion euro in grants and 250 billion euro in loans. Okay. So two third, one third, basically. Yeah. And started at 500 billion in grants, which is, of course, higher than than the final amount ended up being. Mm -hmm. But as a counter, Spain suggested instead of that, how about 1.5 trillion euro in grants? And all the money being grants, none of it being <laughs> loans. So they said, I like that, but how about you triple the amount of money coming that has no strings attached? Yeah, and, just, and that's a good starting point. <laughs> yeah, don't attach strings to any of it. Yeah, And the Netherlands chimed in with a pretty extreme counter offer mm. of 1 billion euro in grants. Ah, So, you know, one five hundredth of what Germany and France originally pitched and I don't even know what the math is on what fraction of what Spain was suggesting that is. It's a fraction of a percent, like a tenth of a percent or less. Yeah. Yeah. And let's note here that the Netherlands are part of a group of four countries that are called, quotes, the frugal four within the EU. Oh, those, those sound like a fun bunch of guys. Let's hang out with those guys. Yeah. I want to hang out with the frugal four. They're probably like as popular as the Beatles within Europe. The Fab Four I'm referring to, of course. Mm -hmm. So the Frugal Four consists of the Netherlands, Austria, Denmark, and Sweden. So Mm. Northern European countries, right? Yeah. And they're frugal. That's where they got the name. Yeah. So those were the numbers that these different countries were proposing going into negotiations over this bailout package. And the negotiations were originally scheduled to take Correct me if I'm wrong, three days? Yeah, I think two or three days. Yeah. Okay. So they, they, they went to have a meeting that was supposed to last two or three days. The meetings were very tense. The word on the street is that Macron slammed his hand on the table, metaphorically. So dramatic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Major fireworks and sparks <laughs> flying there. One of these sacre bleu. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they actually, the meetings took five days. So they, they went an extra two days. That is a lot of rich dinners. It's, I think, four, four or yeah. five dinner meetings, which for these guys is, is you know, a massive amount of work. Mm. In fact, the length of this summit either equaled the longest summit ever in the EU or, mm. or exceeded it by just a little bit. That's being debated. <laughs> Apparently, there was a meeting in, in the year 2000 that, that lasted five days. Ah, uh, yes. The, some number the, of hours. Uh, the well-known meeting in Nice, France, which I, I guess went an hour longer than, than this particular meeting. Nice meeting, yes. Here's something that's brand new in terms of anything that's been done in the EU before. Mm. The money for this will be raised as common EU debt, which means it'll be raised by selling EU bonds. Yeah, it's a big deal. 
It is, right? Because they've never done it. And it looks kind of like what's done in the United States of America mm-hmm. to raise money. It's, it's sort of similar to like U.S. Treasury bonds. Exactly. And of course, these bonds will have a certain interest rate and a certain rate of return. And the hope is that the people will buy them and fund this massive bailout bill. Exactly. So the assumption has to be that these bonds are going to be somewhat riskier than the U.S. Treasury bill, which is generally regarded as the world's safest investment because people assume that the U.S. is going to be around 10, 20, 50, 100 years from now. I think this is still a safe assumption, although perhaps not as ironclad as it used to be, (laughs) given what's happened recently. Feels a little different than it did a decade ago, but yeah. The whole point of these sort of EU common debt bonds is that the people that buy them are betting on the European Union being around for the next several decades. And a lot of people don't necessarily think it will be. But these funds are intended to ensure (laughs) that it will be. So if you're making this investment, you believe it and you want it to happen. So interests are aligned basically. Right. And they're likely to raise that money. It would be... I think so. It'd be surprising if it just didn't happen. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it's, it's a certainty. So as part of this overall deal, the Frugal Four, again, Netherlands, Austria, Denmark, and Sweden. Penny pinchers. Those penny pinchers do mm. not get to say how the money gets used, but they do. there is a provision in the deal for putting a hold on the distribution of the funds if the Frugal Four don't like what they're seeing. Right. So if the Spaniards or the Italians are having just parties on yachts that where they light bundles of, you know, 100 euro notes on fire, to be fair, there's some precedent for that. <laughs> Absolutely. At least the, the yacht party part. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the you know, if they're necessarily doing that, but they are they do have very generous pension plans, for instance. There is uh, some suggestion that these countries are perhaps a bit more corrupt. Uh, than some of the other countries in the European Union. Um, Not pointing any fingers here. But yeah, if I'm the Netherlands and I'm seeing these guys get up to funny business, I can basically raise a yellow flag and say, hey, put a hold on that tranche of funds (laughs) until you guys can explain what it's going towards a little bit better. They can't say, no, you don't get it, but they can slow it down. It's my understanding. Got it. So in addition to that provision where they can have some say about slowing down the the distribution of those funds. Those countries, the Frugal Four, also got some goodies in the form of uh, bigger rebates from the EU budget. Yeah, so so these Northern European countries pay a lot of money into the EU budget because they have more effective economies. Germany is the biggest economy. It pays the most. But they're going to actually get a little bit more money back than they're used to getting. In addition, I have read that the Netherlands is getting more tax revenue from mm. its ports. It has big ports, especially in Rotterdam. It's the biggest European port. And it gets it collects a lot of revenue from taxes on, on goods coming into that port that ordinarily goes to the EU, and they're going to keep more of it. So all this to say, side payments, right? <laughs> right. And if you're frugal, you got to love that. Yeah, absolutely. In addition to these other provisions, there was discussion of putting a, quotes, rule of law provision into this bailout package. So what, what does that mean? Also, I mean, well, spoiler alert, it didn't wind up in there. But oh. 
How disappointing. <laughs> yeah. What it would have meant is that getting money from this bailout package would have been contingent on preserving the, quotes, rule of law within any given country that was getting the money. Mm. So the reason that that would even be discussed is that some countries in Eastern Europe are having what you might call issues with democratic governance, Uh to put it uh, diplomatically. Yes, as we do when we're discussing diplomatic issues. If there's a place to be diplomatic, it's on the Elucidators podcast. That's how we roll. Yeah. The countries in question, now we're just going to name them. Yeah. Name and shame. Yeah. Hungary. Country Uh, of Hungary under Viktor Orban. Viktor Orban. The Fidesz party, yes. Fidesz. Fidesz. So basically, Hungary is not a democracy anymore. Nope. Orban seized control of the media and the judiciary. And he's ruling by decree, especially during, I mean, most recently during the COVID crisis. He's, he's basically turned into Vladimir Putin, but in yep. Hungary. Hungary, which is in the EU. And the EU is supposed to be a group of like-minded democracies. Yeah. Hungary's that way now. And, and then we've got Poland, which uh, yep. Poland is still a democracy, but it's like moving towards not being one. Yeah. A party called the Law and Justice Party just won a narrow re-election victory for the presidency, and it's a right-wing populist party. Mm. They are anti-gay, they're anti-immigrant, they're anti-Semitic, they're yes. overall illiberal. And Illiberal, very illiberal, trying to run the Hungarian or Russian playbook in Poland. And, and yet, they're a member of the EU. And yes. as we recall, all 27 member countries of the EU have to agree and sign off on any big deal. Including this bailout. Including this one. <laughs> so as you can imagine, this rule of law provision didn't get included in the bill because Hungary and Poland uh, would have voted against it or just did vote against it. Seems like a structural flaw <laughs> in how the European Union works. But I understand why it has to work that way. It's because the association is voluntary. It's not like the European countries fought a civil war whereby one side won and subjugated all the rest of them. That almost happened during World War II, but not quite, right? Ironically, the Germans ended up in control anyway, but (laughs) not, they they actually lost the war, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. So unanimity. And because of that, Hungary and Poland were like, yeah, no rule of law provisions. So instead, we have some very vague language in there not naming Hungary or Poland, and not talking about authoritarianism. So Those are some flaws, but it is what it is. Hungary and Poland are going to get a bunch of money <laughs> from, from this deal, even though they've actually done really surprisingly well with COVID. Yeah, neither country has uh, suffered many deaths. So <clears throat> all of this raises a bunch of questions. The main question that we and others have been wondering is whether or not this deal in in its current form, it has unprecedented characteristics, especially this sort of joint raising of a massive amount of debt and then disbursement of funds with no strings attached. The question is, is this the EU's Hamilton moment? Or is it actually the beginning of the end for the European Union? Or is it neither? Now, I'm pretty sure like 90% of the people that listen to this podcast have watched Hamilton at least three and probably more like six times. How about you, Pete? I have watched Hamilton one time. Do you recall what Hamilton did? 
He he didn't throw away his shot. That's what I. He recall. definitely didn't throw away his shot. There there were a million things that he hadn't done, but <laughs> you had to wait, and then some stuff happened. Yeah, yeah. He federalized the state's debts after the Revolutionary War, and you know, basically at that point, the United States was a loose confederation of states, not capable of raising tax revenue, disorganized and heavily indebted. And so the U.S. was not looking very good. Hamilton was like, all right, the federal government is going to assume all the debts of the states. And we're going to have a Bank of the United States. We're going to print our own money. And we're going to get this done. We're going to turn into a nation instead of a collection of states Mm. through this federalization process. The thing is that the United States, generally speaking, were a lot more united at that time than the 27 members of the European Union. In addition, a lot of the United States hadn't even been created yet. Right. There weren't that many states in the United States. The 27 members of the European Union have mostly been around for a very long time in one form or another. And the majority of them seem to have a strong interest in remaining independent nations. Yeah. Very importantly, the new debt is not mutualized meaning that the individual members of the EU are not jointly and separately liable for each other's payback. And like this is less meaningful than signing a lease with three roommates whereby if you know one guy skips out the three people remaining are liable to pay his rent <laughs> because it's not like uh, the debt markets can't find uh let's say Bulgaria. Everybody knows where Bulgaria is, right? <laughs> well, frankly, I don't, but <laughs> Most people do. I think you could locate it. It's. I'll give you a hint. It's in Bulgaria. Look, as long as the word Bulgaria is written over it on a map, there's a chance I'll find it. Right. Yeah, the point is, like, you know, it, it's it's not mutualized. So each country is still liable for the amount that it's going to spend, right? And it's still possible for countries to default under the terms of this deal. It was not possible for states to default under the terms of Hamilton's deal. Mm. And the key issue here is, another key issue, is that the Eurozone has a unified monetary policy under the Euro, and also the European Central Bank, which is in Germany and prints the Euro, but it does not have a unified fiscal policy in terms of how member states choose to spend the money. What would a unified fiscal policy look like? So uh, the Southern Europeans can continue to spend how they want to spend, so it's it's a lot trickier to maintain a level of balance whereby everybody stays within a range, a fiscal range, that they don't get into trouble and require bailouts. Is <laughs> the basic idea here. Hmm. The creation of the euro was supposed to gradually usher in more fiscal unification, but this absolutely hasn't happened. In addition, the EU doesn't really levy much in the way of taxes. Member states have contributions to the EU, but they're not like compulsory taxes, right? Right, and that would definitely usher things more towards being like one big country as opposed to like a union. Yeah, Yeah. so we're kind of stuck halfway, right? Another question is whether the deal is big enough. We're talking about 390 billion euro in grants divided among 27 countries. So it's not nothing, but will it be enough? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's less than what the United, United States has pumped into the U.S. economy, right? Yeah, it amounts to about 5% of 
of the total GDP of the EU and our stimulus, because we're more unified and we have this unification of monetary and fiscal policy, we're able to push it well over 10%. We can print way more money way faster. And even though America is in worse shape (laughs) in a lot of regards, like our control of the virus itself, we're in better shape financially because we've responded with like super aggressive stimulus. Right. On the federal level and also more locally. And therefore staved off disaster. Absolute disaster. Or at least pushed it down the road. Yeah. (laughs) Right. With the unemployment provision ending, I guess, in a week or two. Knock on wood, something changes there, but we'll see. I think odds are very good that Congress will extend that unemployment provision, extended unemployment, or boosted unemployment benefits. That um, might have been determined by the time this episode airs. We'll see. It, it may very well. Yeah. And the sort of canary in the coal mine here is Italy. An Italian debt crisis would be 10 times worse than the Greek crisis was 10 years ago. Like The Greeks were in terrible shape, but they also have a relatively dinky economy. Italy is much bigger and more important. And the Greek crisis came super close to sinking the euro. Lenders were basically running away from the euro at one point, and it became very much more difficult to borrow in the euro because the assumption was that the euro was going away <laughs> in the near future. Yeah, that's the Greeks. Meanwhile, Italy is currently 2.4 trillion euro in debt, and its economy is projected to shrink 9% this year, which is higher than the 7.5% shrinkage that the broader Eurozone is going to undergo. Yeah, those numbers don't look good at all. No, they don't. Uh, Not for Italy. So it may very well be the case that Italy needs more help. The overall budget that the European Union settled on for the next six years was like 1.8 trillion. 1.8, yeah. Italy is 2.4 trillion in debt. Yeah. More than the whole EU budget. Yeah, it's okay to carry a lot of debt, but they're headed towards 200% double GDP, which is really not okay in most cases. Tenuous. Yeah, it's like, how are you guys ever going to pay us back? And the answer is, we don't know, and we probably won't. (laughs) But it's not like they can default. But have some gelato. Yeah, we have delicious gelato and the finest Italian leather shoes. That remains true. Anyway, the deal also doesn't address other problems, right? Uh, Like the presence of autocracies in the European Union. Although it it couldn't have addressed that, right? Because the autocracies are member countries that can veto any type of attempt to address that. Exactly. There's a provision for a country to decide that it wants to leave the European Union, like Britain has done, Mm. right? There's an article that they invoked in the the treaty that they signed. But I don't think that there's a provision to kick a country out of the European Union if the other 26 countries are like, all right, Hungary, GTFO, you're done. Um, Like, I don't think there's a way to do that because, again, the idea was you have to become a democracy to join, and then once you're a democracy... Yeah, why why would you change? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Turns out that's incorrect. (laughs) Yeah, but it's seeming like a bit of an oversight to some countries at this point. Oops. (laughs) And on top of this, there are anti-EU parties, mostly from the right wing, throughout individual EU countries, including really important ones like the Netherlands, like Germany, 
like Italy, like France, every single one of like the big EU countries remaining have powerful right-wing parties that make a lot of noise about leaving the European Union. Mm. And part of what they're saying, especially in the Netherlands and Germany, is we're giving money to these Southern Europeans and they're just lighting it on fire. So ignoring the fact that their countries sell, what is it, 40% of their goods to these Southern European countries? And therefore, the Southern European countries are making the the Northern European countries rich. On top of that, it's much easier to go vacation in Southern European countries because they're part of the Eurozone. Yeah, it's these are populist parties and they make appeals to emotion. And the following appeal, they're ripping us off. We've seen in this country has a lot of political power. They're taking advantage of us. They're ripping us off. Obviously, we don't go into all the good things we get right. out of the arrangement because that's more complicated. People's eyes glaze over yeah. when you talk about you know, foreign exchange and a balance of payments and trade and stuff like this. Creating a scapegoat and focusing people's attention on it is very effective. Super effective, yeah. And like, none of these parties are in control of these big, important countries yet. But several of them are kind of threatening. Several of them have entered governing coalitions, you know, which is somewhat troubling. Mm. So, final thoughts... You know, is this the Hamilton moment? Is it the end of the EU? Or is it kind of neither? I think it's actually a really promising step because I think one of the founders of the European Union said that the union would be forged in crisis. And we've seen this pattern whereby the EU kind of stagnates for a while. It goes backwards. People start grumbling. You know, what has, what, what has the EU done for me lately, Right. All of these Polish plumbers are moving to my nice English village and you know taking away my jobs. You know what am I getting from the European Union? I, I don't like it. I want my country back, so on and so forth. And then there's a crisis, and the European Union responds because it has to, and it tightens up the European Union. People remember why it's important, why they want it. In this case, the Italians and the Spaniards and the Greeks are about to get a lot of free money. This comes after their Euro- European partners, you know, kind of drop the ball <laughs> for the pandemic response in the early days. But it's like better late than never. They are coming through, right? Yeah, they're offsetting some things that they did that weren't so great in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. And on top of this, like, I'm of the opinion personally, I want to see the European Union succeed. I want to see it turn into more of a state and to assert itself on the international stage. Because I think that it might be our last best hope <laughs> on planet hmm. Earth. <laughs> These are guys that take climate change seriously. Uh, they take democracy seriously. And they have at least the economic power and the cultural power and the understanding to make a difference. As part of the 1.8 trillion euro budget that just got passed, there's a huge provision for spending on climate change as part of that budget in, in amounts and numbers that just aren't happening in the United States or China, which are kind of the two other contenders for global leadership, right? Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great thing, and it far exceeds what the U.S. is doing. And in that sense, is admirable and something that it would be great for us to emulate. 
I agree. Yeah. And the U.S. has always been in the driver's seat since World War II, right? At the moment, we seem to be, I don't know, driving on way too much Percocet and slumping out of the driver's seat. <laughs> Somebody's got to take the wheel here. Yeah, we've climbed into the trunk somehow. Yeah, yeah, we've been we we woke up in the trunk. The Chinese and the Europeans are kind of jockeying over the steering wheel right now. I think we should want the Europeans to win. I don't really like what the Chinese seem to be up to with their newfound power, and I don't think I'm alone in the Western world. Yeah, and, and in large parts of Asia too. So yeah, I agree with you there, and I, I'm also in agreement with you. I I would like to see the EU continue to exist. And as such, yeah. I think that this bailout package that they've negotiated is is a very good thing. Totally. They had to do it, right? Otherwise, the, e- the EU was going to end here and now. So That's the right. fact that they accomplished anything that 27 states could agree upon in this emergency situation is a great sign because <laughs> it means we get more time, like we get another chance. And it means that once this has been done before, it can be done again. That's right. This is sort of a proof of concept. Exactly. Even though the, the, the Germans and the Dutch and the Swedes and so on hate this idea, they understand that it sets a precedent. Yeah. And the Italians are probably going to need more money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's just the bottom line. There's precedent for it to be no strings attached. Yeah. For the argument to be made, well, it's keeping our entire union afloat. Right. And they can still buy our stuff, <laughs> which is really important. Right. And Italy is an important country. Like we should want them in the in the union. Like we don't want them to go the way of Britain and start competing with us and make us weaker. I, I guess I would just say whatever happens, it's a new chapter for the EU, isn't it? And will never be the same as it was before this. It's a big deal, and it it appears to have not thrown away its shot at least this time. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, cool. Talk to you next week, huh? Yeah. Talk to you next week, buddy. Thanks a lot. All right, Steve. Bye.